The scripture in this morning will be from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7, and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, verse 9. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Appreciate Corey reading the uh, scripture today. It's good to be with everybody. Appreciate the prayers and uh, the songs, the Lord's taking the Lord's Supper together. Um, last week, in our lesson on Jesus's prayer for uh, the fellowship, the unity of uh, what he called the people that God gave him, uh, which is us, which is his followers, um, we saw in John 17 that one essential trait of Christ's disciples is that we embrace our mission in the world. And I suggested that this requires thinking correctly about the issue of power versus weakness, power versus weakness. And, and we really do need to have a solid grip on this as Bible believers, because scripture says a lot of things about power, and uh, it, says, it says them frequently, and they're very enigmatic, paradoxical things that should cause our ears to perk up. Things like the first shall be last, Jesus said, or the greatest among you is not the one who is in a position of authority or who is exercising lordship, but it's the one who serves like a slave or a servant. And Jesus told Paul, Paul relays this in 2 Corinthians, that power is made perfect in weakness. So this morning, we want to drill down a bit more deeply on this question of power and the people of God. Power and the people of God. Let me make sure my cursor's on. There we go. So I, I want to note with you that this phrase comes from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul is dealing with his thorn in the flesh and praying that it would be taken away. Basically, the answer from the Lord is, no, you're, you need that. And when uh, he relates this uh, this to us, he says that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So um, this morning, we want to look at this idea of the, of, of the relationship between the people of God and power, power and the people of God. And we want to consider three different perspectives uh, on this question of power and the people of God. So how do we, we're going to ask this, how, what is our perspective on power? How do we see power and how should that be different from the way the world sees it? So let's first of all reflect on the sort of conventional uh, perspective on power, the power that most people in the world um, employ and believe in and take to be just sort of common sense. I, I think it's safe to say that the conventional view of power is that it's actually very desirable, um, necessary even, uh, to function out in the real world. 
Um, and just so that we understand, we're, we're casting a really broad net here. And this is something I believe applies to every single human being that God made. Um, if you don't like the word power, you can substitute some other word like authority or influence or control or management, uh, maybe something more palpable, uh, you know, sway. But it doesn't really matter what word we use. Most of the world views re resorting to a kind of assertiveness, whether it's explicit or more implicit and passive in its MO, as just normal. Um, power can take different forms in different contexts, but basically it, it involves methods, whether they are overt or subtle, to keep ourselves, to keep what we find to be important in control, under wraps. We're going to do that. And we're going to do it fairly assertively. Um, this embrace of power as a way of life is so conventional that we can see it in pretty much every walk of life. Think about professional life, the world of, of business and jobs and that sort of thing. We seek to control our own destiny uh, by accumulating credentials. Um, we, we chart out our plans for the future to build our resume or to build our brand. Uh, we, we need to impress other people um, so that we might advance, so that we might be uh, you know, upwardly, up, upwardly mobile in our, our careers. Um, we try to acquire ever more influence or authority, or maybe it's money uh, for some of us, but that too is really a source of power, at least we think it is. So in our professional lives, I think we see um, the grasping and clinging to and reliance upon power all over the world. Um, it's pretty much universal. And we can see um, the universality of this uh, quest and desirability of power in our personal lives. Um, think of the great links that human beings can go to in an attempt to control what others think of us. Um, we acquire certain possessions sometimes, thinking about maybe subconsciously, maybe consciously, well, this will get me some, some clout or some cred or some um, attention or some admiration. Um, the way we dress is often calculated for a similar effect. The hobbies that we want to be known for, that we want to be associated with our name and our persona. Um, the names we drop, whether they're the names of people we've met or the books we uh, at least claim to have read, um, you know, or, or just a social media persona that we carefully cultivate. All of that can be an attempt to control um, our future, to control especially our social future, our business future, what people think about us. And, and I understand that these kinds of efforts can be pure, but they can also be an effort in image control. We're, it's about control. It's about power. And what about in our personal relationships? Um, family, friends, church members, we, we exert power in, in a sense by trying to control the behavior of other people. Um, when we feel wronged, you know, most of us have been wronged or felt slighted. Well, what is what in the world is, is grudge holding uh, or being stingy uh, with forgiveness if it's not just a, a, a more subtle form of power dynamics? You're holding that person to account indefinitely by not forgiving, by holding that grudge. It's, it's a way to keep power in a relationship. And we can see reliance on power at perhaps its most blatant. Uh, in the realm of, of uh, the public square, in the realm of politics. How many political actors in history have truly believed that they could affect change by mere moral suasion? 
by merely speaking truth to power, rather than matching power with more raw power. I'll give you an example. Back in the 60s, there was an or a civil rights organization founded at Shaw University in, in downtown Raleigh. Um, I believe it was founded there. It's called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, abbreviated SNCC very often. And in the early 60s, under the leadership of John Lewis, SNCC was dedicated to peaceful protests for civil rights, and it welcomed interracial cooperation. So a lot of white students would get involved with black students as they protested this or that civil rights abuse. It, it's sort of the MO, the approach that we typically associate with uh, somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. But in 1966, John Lewis is replaced as chairman of, of SNCC by a man named Stokely Carmichael. And under his leadership, the organization grew more impatient with the nonviolent peaceful protest methodology, and it shifted more toward black militancy. Malcolm X was sort of associated with that general phase of the movement, and he wrote this on one occasion, you should never be nonviolent unless your enemies are nonviolent. Everybody would like to reach his objectives peacefully, but I'm also a realist. All right, what do you think about that? Would love, you know, in a perfect world to use nonviolence, but if the person is violent or forceful toward me, then you gotta match power with power. I'm realistic, right? And King, on the other hand, had seen real world, realistic world-changing potency in the nonviolent ethics of Jesus. He was very much influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. He called Jesus, quote, an extremist for love. But you know what? Lots of folks have found that ludicrous. There was a certain German politician in the 1920s and 1930s by the name of Adolf Hitler who found Jesus and Christianity, at least privately, uh, too weak for the political needs of, of, of 1930s Germany, a nation which had a strong Christian history dating back to Martin Luther, a, a strong Christian identity on some level. But he wrote this or said this, it's been Germany's misfortune, I'm quoting, to have the wrong religion, speaking of Christianity. Why didn't we have one of the other world religions? Why did it have to be Christianity with all of its meekness and flabbiness? How could ending up on a cross ever signify strength? Indeed, Rome had used the cross precisely for this purpose, to display the weakness of the one who was being condemned. He loses, she loses. But power, if we're honest, has also been part and parcel of much religion in history. Go all the way back to the New Testament, in fact, and look at Saul of Tarsus, the man who would later become the apostle Paul, the, the apostle of Jesus to the Gentile world, but started off in his life as Saul of Tarsus. The pre-Christian Saul had been all about worldly power. Even while he was making God's law his life's purpose, his life's purpose was to, to shore up the, the sway of God's rule of, of Torah over the people of, of Judea, um, over against all of these encroachments from Gentile culture and the Roman occupation. He wanted that out and the people to be restored to being pure Yahweh followers, true to the Torah. That was Paul's life's purpose, his life's goal. And yet he used worldly power 
as good as anybody ever has, as well as anybody ever has. He called his old MO confidence in the flesh. And this included cultivating a pedigree of professional credentials, just like we were talking about a minute ago. Look what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 3. Verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. I've got all these credentials that make me not only a really good Jew, but a, a, a good rabbinical student on the fast track to being a Torah expert and a defender in the culture wars of his day. So this looks like pretty much conventional pedigree formation, credential building, resume building. I need to impress the right people to be put myself in a position to do, do good influence for God. He strove for a bootstraps righteousness, pretty much the opposite of what Jake's Lord's Supper talk calls on us to do, and that's admit we're a sinner and to take that to Jesus. Paul didn't need that early on. Look what he says here about this bootstraps righteousness in Philippians 3, 6. He says, as it pertains to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I had created this perfect track record, and he was even not above coercion in the name of God. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says, as to zeal, you want a measure of my zeal for the law of God? I was a persecutor of this imposter called the church of Jesus. So Paul does all the things that regular uh, reliance on power looks like. He's building credentials. He is uh, declaring that he himself is the righteous one with perfect track record. He is coercing using force in the name of God. And indeed, Saul was among the Pharisees, uh, at least some of whom sought to destroy Jesus because they thought he was taking the people away from pure Torah observance. And, we, and Paul talks about this in Acts 22 when he stands before his detractors uh, who, you know, he, he's actually in physical jeopardy at this point. There at the temple, he gives this speech and he says this in Acts 22, verse three, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, that is Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed to Damascus up north to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, what all of this shows in the case of Paul is that religious folks, ostensibly godly folks, can be taken up in this vortex of power. We can be quite comfy, if we're honest, with old-fashioned garden variety power. And we don't look very much different from the world. Even if we wrap it in a pious packaging. But Saul would later come to see that he had wrongly, as he puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, quote, regarded Christ according to the flesh. I had once regarded Christ according to a human measure, one version says, but he continues, now we regard him this way no longer. Paul had adopted a new perspective on Jesus of Nazareth. He now saw him to be the Christ indeed, and as part of that, he had adopted a new view of power and weakness.
So let's turn our attention now to a second perspective on power. And that is what we're going to call the perspective of Calvary, the hill where Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. From one angle, what occurred on the hill of Calvary some 2,000 years ago looked just like conventional power in operation and winning yet again. That's what its wielders would have thought, the Romans who were crucifying him, Pontius Pilate who sentenced him to death, the Jewish multitude who was complicit in the whole thing and agging it on, and Saul of Tarsus himself. But the New Testament tells us something different. It tells us that Jesus actually chose the weakness of the cross. He chose, if you will, downward mobility. Isaiah 53, the passage that was read and the passage that in inspires the song uh, that we sang a few minutes ago, um, uh, highly exalted, says this, speaking prophetically of Jesus the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. See if this sounds like conventional power. This is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe that it's describing. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Does this look like power? Silence rather than self-vindication? Choosing humiliation instead of credentials and clout? Choosing to absorb wrong not avenge wrong done to him. And yet in Philippians 2, we read that this very weakness was the path to exaltation and glory. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to the Philippians. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clung to protected at all costs. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself even further, it says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, and even further than that, even death on a cross. But it's for this reason, Paul says, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name. The path to power was through weakness. The path to glory was to, through humiliation. The path to victory was through defeat. And this is the great paradox that lies at the heart of the cross. This is very different than what crosses typically signify. So what changed? In fact, we could ask, what changed everything? What made this cross different from the countless others the thousands upon thousands that have been deployed by Roman legions. Indeed, further, we can ask, what made this cross the pivot point of all history? And the answer is the resurrection. The fact that Jesus did not stay in the tomb. On the third day, he emerged. 
completely alive. The resurrection was certainly the pivot point for Saul of Tarsus. I want you to hear Saul now. Hear this defender of Judaism against all the encroachments of the Gentile pagan world. Hear Saul, this former persecutor of the church, relate how he had become Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those Gentile nations. This is a long reading, but I think it's important. He recounts this in the speech that we began to read a few minutes ago, picking it up now in Acts 22, verse 6. He says, I was on my way up there to persecute Christians, bring them back, bound, and put them in prison and punish them for being, uh, being uh, heretics against Judaism. He says, I was on my way to Damascus up in Syria about noon, and a light from heaven suddenly shone about, uh, around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So the one who was executed lives yet. And he said to me, Paul continues, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Those who were with me saw the light, he says. They didn't understand who was speaking to me. But Paul says that he asked Jesus, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to, do, you to do. And in verse 12, one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to Paul, Paul says, and standing by me, he said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. The light was so great that it had blinded him. He receives his sight and sees him, and he says to Paul in verse 14, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And note verse 21, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Note the irony here. The one who was so determined to defend Judaism against the encroachment of the Gentile world with all of its impurity. The great culture warrior has now been redirected to proclaim the very Jesus he persecuted is indeed God and the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And guess who he's commissioned to tell that message to? The Gentile nations. Timothy Gombas has written an excellent little book called Power and Weakness, Paul's Transformed Vision for Ministry, which I recommend to anybody who has any idea uh, in their mind that they might ever be a shepherd or a deacon or just a Christian trying to influence their neighbor. Such a good book. Here's what he says. I've been reading it this week. He says, this encounter with the Lord Jesus led to a radical renovation of everything that Paul thought he knew. He now realized that his entire pursuit was a complete misrepresentation of the God of Israel. The God of Israel does not vindicate the striver, the achiever, the honorable one, or the insider. He does not raise from the dead, the one who meets all the culturally approved marks of identity, the one with all the credentials. God vindicates the one who calls for non-retaliation, for loving one's enemies, even the Romans. The one who gives himself up to shame, who comes in weakness and does not coerce. God raises the one who rejects violence and becomes the object of violence. This realization had a radical effect on Paul's outlook 
on everything. So I ask you, what does Calvary say about power? It says that the cross of Christ is where real power, genuine power, is located. The point from which it emanates. Because it alone, the cross alone, unleashes resurrection power. And this is what Gombas argues in his book. At Calvary, strength is weakness, and weakness is strength. Reality itself becomes redefined in one of Luke's phrases from Acts 17, a world turned upside down by the gospel. So this raises a question for us that I want to finish up our thoughts this morning with. Our third point is to have us think critically, think introspectively and honestly. Do the hard work of letting the word work on you. Hmm? Don't just pluck out the verses that feel like they go with what you already think. Don't just read people who say about the Bible what you already think. That's too easy. Let the Bible approach you critically and force you to ask honestly what your perspective is on everything, but especially this morning on this question of power. We've talked about the conventional respect, uh, perspective on power. We've talked about Calvary's perspective on, uh, on power. And now I want to talk about what should be the Christian's perspective on power. What about us? What about you? What about me? We're faced, after all, with two fundamentally opposed perspectives on power and weakness. And so how will we think about power? I would suggest to you that our answer to this question, how we think about power, will impact our behavior in a thousand ways. It will be revealed in countless interactions, countless decisions, large and small, visible and invisible. What is the cross to us? What is the cross? Is it just the answer to the question, how you got saved? Something that happened, you know, at a certain date when you were 14 years old or 21 years old or last year or 30 years ago, when I got saved. The cross's relevance has, you know, it does not extend beyond the question of your salvation, the moment that you became a follower of Jesus. Or is the cross a way of life? Yes, it was key to your salvation. Because the righteousness of Christ is what we have to have, and it came at the cross. But it's also supposed to be a way of life. I think for many people, the cross is merely a symbol nowadays, many Christians. It's not so much a way of life. It's a symbol. It's a slogan. It's a prop. But you know what? If I beat somebody over the head with a cross... That's still worldly power in action, isn't it? I mean, I'm still beating someone over the head. The cross is not a rallying cry for, for war, for you know, culture war. It's not a rallying cry for any kind of force or militants. The cross is the place, after all, where the Prince of Peace died as he absorbed the evil and wrongdoing of his enemies. A woman by the name of Kristen Dumay has written a little book, which I've not read. I have heard her interviewed on it, uh, and I, I will probably order this book. It's, it's got an interesting, catchy title. The book is called Jesus and John Wayne. <clears throat> David Olga just woke up, not because I said Jesus, but I said John Wayne. 
Jesus and John Wayne, what, what's this about and who is she? Well, she is a, a history professor at Calvin University up in Michigan, which is a Christian college, theologically conservative uh, Christian college in the reformed world. And she is herself a self-identified Calvinist. Um, and so she wrote this book. And what she talks about in this book is the rise of a militant kind of Christianity, uh, a, a conception of Christianity that is aggressive, that faithfulness means being aggressive, being harsh if necessary, being forceful if necessary. And what she shows in here as a historian um, is that this really isn't something that comes so much out of the Bible for, and this basically is talking about uh, modern evangelical, at least many evangelical Christians today. And she says, this isn't something that you just take straight out of the Bible. That's not what's informing this sort of militant Christianity uh, notion. It, really, she's found and demonstrates in the book, apparently, that it's secular role models that are informing this. It's Hollywood, uh, sort of macho Hollywood action movie stars, things like that. Um, and she traces this from all the way back in the 19th century with Teddy Roosevelt and up through the 40s and the Cold War, through the 60s, and down even to today's culture war politics. But notes that it wasn't always this way. It, this isn't, you know, uh, there, there were earlier versions, uh, conceptions of Christianity that were not using the assumption that militants is what Christianity means. Um, in fact, there's a lot of biblical resources that would suggest otherwise. Second great command is to love your neighbors yourself. The Bible often presents true masculinity as being um, accompanied with tenderness and gentleness, as well as protection. There are many texts in the Bible on humility and kindness, texts which call us to trust and not succumb to fear. And she notes that this militant version of Christianity feeds off fear. Um, it, it requires fear uh, and an enemy to combat uh, for the narrative to work. And I want to tell you something. There are a number of surveys nowadays that show us that people, younger people, especially millennials, Gen Z folks, but lots of people are leaving Christianity because of its association with these kinds of power plays, this combativeness and this political gamesmanship that is all bound up in some expressions of American Christianity. I'm talking about out in the public square, but let's move beyond that because beyond uh, the public square, what about our personal relationship? We've still got to ask ourselves this question as Christians. When it comes to power, am I being a Saul, Saul of Tarsus, pre-Christian guy, or am I being more like Paul? After Damascus, Paul knew that his worth could no longer have anything to do with his own righteousness, and it had everything to do with Christ's. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that it's cruel to tell a man to pull himself up by his bootstraps when he doesn't even have any boots. And Paul now knew when it comes to measuring up to a holy God, none of us has any boots, much, much less any bootstraps. Paul now knew that resurrection life came through death, that real power came through weakness. He wrote this to the Philippians in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8. He said that I might gain Christ and be found in him. That's my new goal. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power, there's our word, the power of his resurrection 
but he also says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why? Because only when we share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, only when the cross becomes our way of life, is it possible, as verse 11 puts it, that we may attain the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection power comes from being crucified to self. So am I more like Saul or am I more like Paul? In our relationships with one another, will we relinquish control and trust the weakness of the cross and the power of resurrection? In responding to sin, will we spurn the seductive illusion of power and just admit our mistake? Will the one who is wronged respond the way the crucified one responded? Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. In our disagreements with one another, with brothers and sisters in Christ, in our dynamics socially, inside the church, in church relationships, I mean to say, will we follow the example of Jesus, an empty self of power, in deference to the other person? Remember Philippians 2, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who you know, emptied himself. Well, that, that's the point. Have this mind in you, he says. And the context is verse three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count other people, brothers and sisters more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Why? Because that is the mentality of the cross. That is the embrace of weakness that Jesus of Nazareth hanging on the cross exemplified and called us to. And as we think about our church, in, it, in the capacity of its witness out to the community, our evangelism. As you think about how we're doing in that area, by what measure will we measure that? How will we measure ourselves? What will be the metric of quote-unquote success? I want to share with you one more quote from the Timothy Gombas book along these lines. He says this, the church is not at all an organization of this world and it cannot be conceived of in that way. We may fall into the trap of envisioning the church as if it were an organization that can be led the way a CEO leads a company, the way a manager leads a business, or the way a general leads an army. But the church is utterly unique. The only body of people on earth with whom, within whom God dwells. Think about that. And he, that is God, is not just among us in a general sense. God is present in the church in power, radiating resurrection life by his spirit. Second paragraph. We can talk about how we want God to do big things, but motivations are difficult to discern. And desiring a growing church may stem from personal pride. This sort of growth conception of ministry has much in common with the economic ideology of capitalism. On this outlook, things are going well in the church if the numbers are increasing. That's it, market share, right? 
In the New Testament, however, the main metaphor for the church is a family. We'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks, Lord willing. But the main metaphor isn't a business or an army or any other thing. It's a family. Prospects for growth may or may not be great. But what matters is that everyone looks after everyone else. What is crucial is the regular celebration of the bonds of family unity to revisit and rehearse the new identity that God has given all of us. And note this last sentence. God is the one who forms his church and builds his new family. Now, I'm not suggesting we should make the age-old mistake of thinking that faithfulness means we can't learn anything from those outside the church. I do not believe that. All truth is God's truth, as we said last week. We should listen. There's something called common grace. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. The sun shines. Ideas dawn on people who aren't even believers. So I'm not suggesting that. But we must take care, on the other hand, not to imitate the conventional trust in power. Conventional power wrapped in a cross and religious dressing over trusting the actual way of the cross. For while the cross may look like weakness, it is ultimately the only true power in the world. Let's close now with the words of Paul, the apostle of the crucified one. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Thanks a lot, folks.